discussing the wisdom literature, and um, we have um, been through. Hold on. Uh, we've been through. We started with Proverbs, and now we're talking about Ecclesiastes. And today, I want us to watch a little bit of just three or four minutes of this. Uh, Another video from the Bible Project. Uh, they do just a good job of drawing, and they're going to introduce the the idea of who wrote Ecclesiastes, and then get we're going to get into chapters one and two today. Um, and so I'm going to present some things. But uh, the great thing about this class uh, so far is just the wisdom that's in here. And so I look forward to your comments and your joining in as we as we talk and sharing. Your thoughts and what you have seen as you live life under the sun. So um, let's see if we can watch a little bit of this and then we'll discuss. Uh, okay. It's part of the Bible's wisdom literature and it opens with this line The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, in Hebrew, the word kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn, so it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end. And it's Hevel. Hevel. Everything is utterly Hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word Hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, Hevel literally means vapor or smoke, and the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke, but secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes, and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time, bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. 
So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us, and it will be here long after. I mean, no one's even going to remember you or anything you did a hundred years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. And the ocean will still be breaking on the beach, and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher also can't stop talking about death all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer, and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, no matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die, and it's inescapable. So with these two ideas in hand, the teacher goes on to consider all the activities and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance, like wealth, or career, or social status, or pleasure. So you think working hard is going to make life worth it? Think about the stress and the toll that that takes on you, all the anxiety and the sleepless nights. And by the time you actually earn some wealth, you're going to be too old to enjoy it anyway. And then by the time that you have to pass it on to someone, they may not even be someone who cares about anything that you did. Or maybe you think pleasure is going to make life worth it for you. Go for it. You know, live for your vacations, live for the weekend party, Monday always comes. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. So what does the teacher advocate then? That we become pure hedonists or relativists? Well, no, that would be hevel too. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs, that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're hevel too. Because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions. And so even wisdom is hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all of the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologues, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship, or family, a good meal, or a sunny day. You can't control these things. You're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be. Because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end. 
which might hurt when it pokes you, but he says the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far, and you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment. The hope that one day God will clear away all of the hevel and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. Alright, so, um, that's a really good summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. It was very encouraging. Uh, yes. <laughs> If you're looking for encouragement, you may want to leave now. <laughs> but there, there is a lot of wisdom in thinking about how do we manage what happens in our lives. And um, we were talking earlier about the point is there is no point. And so it's contradictory. How, what is the point? The point is, I mean, I, that we can't know the point. That's the point. There is a point, but we can't know what it is. <laughs> okay, uh, so... Um, Lots of things in there, and we're going to come back to some of that. Um, let's talk some about the authorship of this book. And um, so, let me see. Um, so many windows. Whenever I do this in class, my students go crazy. Like, how do you have this many windows? But um, <laughs> apparently, that's how I do it. Um, okay, so evidence that Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes, I guess I'm presenting this idea. I, I want to open it up for discussion, though. Maybe Solomon did write it. Um, I've thought about it some, and I've, I've, I'm pretty content to say that somebody wrote it in Solomon's name, even though... So, let me just... Uh, I, I just taught uh, a class at Lipscomb, and I was talking. We were talking. We're discussing the authorship of the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. Did Paul write them? A lot of scholars say we don't think Paul wrote the pastoral epistles, and I was arguing pretty strongly that Paul did uh, to the class. And my my biggest argument was every one of those starts out I Paul an apostle, and then it has a lot of personal details in there. So. If Paul didn't write those, it's it's a lie, pretty much. I mean, they're trying to trick us into thinking that Paul really wrote those. And there's lots of discussion about that's okay, people thought it was okay, the message is what's really important, not who wrote it. So, I know all sides, right? But um, but then somebody asked me about the authorship of Ecclesiastes because they would written their paper on that. And I said, well, I don't think so. I'm going to <laughs> so, but the difference is that it doesn't ever 
come out and say, I, Solomon, am writing this book. It's never mentioned by name. So this is the key to me in, in a lot of these questions on biblical interpretation is what is the genre of this. So this is not a letter like one of Paul's letters. That's a different genre. I think that's harder to argue for, what we call pseudonymity. But in uh, Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature, I think it's, it's we can allow, maybe, that somebody later could come along and say, here's what Solomon should have learned from his wisdom and his life and, and what it was about. So this is my, and so I'm just going to present the evidence again, so then you, you, can, you can argue if you want to. But, um, okay, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Well, Solomon was always the king. So if this is Solomon, wouldn't he say, I am king? What do you think? Alright. <laughs> Unless he's writing there at a certain moment in his kingdom. Like, a certain yeah. moment, like, thinking back, I was, yeah. you know. Yeah. Okay, I'm open to that. <laughs> um... He says, I have grown in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. How many people ruled over Jerusalem before Solomon? Saul, David. Well, Saul, wasn't, was he in Jerusalem? Maybe just David? But anyway, even if it's two, what kind of brag is that? I'm Will Rose and two people. Uh, so. Um, now, some people say um, you could count the Jebusite kings, so maybe there were some kings, but I don't know, one, one author on this says, that's ridiculous. I don't know, he didn't really, that's not a good argument, but he just says, that's ridiculous to say that. This was uh, a pretty good scholar who said that. But I guess being smarter than Jebusite kings wouldn't have been that great, or maybe they didn't even know who... Did they know all the Jebusite kings before they came? All this. So, that's uh, that's another argument. Um, now, let's look at 1 Kings 11, 1 to 6. Um, and see. So, this is from 1 Kings. So, this is a, in the history genre of the Bible. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Uh, I saw a cartoon once of uh, Solomon's bathroom, and it had a, it had a his towel. Okay, so a lot of wives. Um, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Um, he built a high place for Shemosh, the testable god of Moab, for Molech, the testable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives. 
who burn incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So the Lord was angry with Solomon. He sends other nations to attack them and, and things. So I actually wrote a paper on this in grad school and I argued that Solomon did write Ecclesiastes. And one of my arguments was, well, God you know, was trying to chastise Solomon and maybe that worked. Uh, because a lot of times God's chastisement works. Uh, but as I think about it now, it never says that Solomon came back. Um, it just, it's always negative, and, and Solomon's disobedience is what, what kind of leads to the division of the kingdom uh, into Israel. And then Solomon dies. Um, so, one of the arguments for Solomon writing Ecclesiastes is some people just don't like the idea that Solomon, the wisest person in all of history, strayed from the Lord and didn't come back. And so, if we have Solomon writing Ecclesiastes, it makes us feel better about that because that means, well, he actually did return later. But why is that return not mentioned here? Um, maybe people knew about it and they didn't have to mention it. Um, so, um, the argument is, could be, that Ecclesiastes was written in the voice of Solomon to show what Solomon should have learned. Um, what do you think? I think there's merit to that. But, you know, we can't know for sure, obviously, but I think it's definitely possible. Yeah. That Solomon didn't write it? Yes. Yeah. Does it bother anybody? Do you want Solomon to be the author? Yeah. I think it, for me it's important to remember that m many of us, even in our simple lives, may say and teach our children and su make suggestions to people without having lived them out. Maybe there's something, there's some more uh, veracity in it coming from a person who knows that that's true even though it didn't happen to them and they didn't pursue that path. So, I mean, that may be some explanation yeah. as to how he could have written all this wonderful stuff but not lived it. Yeah. And there, there are, as the video showed, two different characters in the book. So there, there's the critic and or the teacher, but then there's the, the author. Is a, there's actually two different people. So, you know, that's if Solomon wrote the whole thing, then he's creating another character, or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is, does does not the author create the teacher as a character? Yeah. So yeah. It doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be, be from just person. one person. Yeah. The teacher could be the summation yeah. of all the wisdom that the author has ever heard about. Sometimes famous people refer to themselves in the third person. <laughs> Dennis Rodman used to do that. <laughs> Joseph White tries not to do that too much. <laughs> George Goldman does try not to do it too. George Goldman thinks it's annoying to do that. 
Is this where, is Ecclesiastes the only place where we get that Solomon was wise? No. No, it's, it's in uh, one of the other books. <laughs> <laughs> is it First Kings still, or is it second? First Kings in the beginning? Yeah, we, we looked at that, uh, I think, the week you were not here. Um, but yeah, it says he was wiser than all the wisest people yeah, in, in the history book. One, one of the notes, I'm sorry, one of the notes that's in my Oxford Annotated Bible, which is, which is really more footnotes than it is Bible, right. uh, points out that the economic situation in uh, Israel had just changed because the Persians had introduced coinage <coughs> and it just turned society over yeah. and that poor people could suddenly have a chance to become wealthy. Wealthy people could lose everything they had because they're no longer just land and cattle, yeah. but coins, you could lose us. Uh, Sounds like Bitcoin to me. And uh, <laughs> that, that this turned over all of the social interactions, and so it makes sense that somebody has written all these things to try to make sense yeah. out of that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, but it doesn't make sense that it could be any one person. It almost sounds like, oh, where's the College of Economists? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are, so there, there are conservative scholars on the issues uh, related to authorships of books in the Bible who do argue that Solomon didn't write it. I mean, you can, you can argue that and still be conservative. So. <laughs> um, you don't have to be liberal. Yes. It, it just feels a little judgmental or presumptuous to say, well, here's what he should have learned if he was all if he was all the what he said he was. Yeah. This is what he should have learned. So, in some ways, while I completely can see how Solomon could not have written it, there's also a part of me that's like, well, if he didn't write it, then how do we how do we filter and, and look this book through that lens of this is what someone said they should he should have done. Well, um, whoever wrote it, the message would still be the same. <laughs> so that's important. Um, yeah, Kim. Well, I think that Solomon would be a good test case for taking the arguments out to the full degree. You know, like you could argue, if you're arguing the meaninglessness of pleasure, yeah. well, he, we can say, well, if I just have more pleasure. Well, he literally had everything he could have had. And same with wealth. And it's funny because I actually remember one of the few sermons I remember as a high schooler, my preacher who was conservative preaching on Ecclesiastes and probably would have argued Solomon would have written it. He talked about that opening season thing and it was called, the sermon was called When You Add It Up and Get Zero. And um, how he explained the message, he actually quoted like people like Brad Pitt and Michael Jordan who had gotten yeah. to the top and found it less than. You know, if my preacher, Mr. Rob, had argued that, I'm like, well, you haven't actually got to the top, so maybe. You know what I mean? You have to have someone <laughs> yes, that you can yes. quote who has made it. Yeah. And in their world, Solomon's the one who made it. Yeah. I heard a podcast with Hank Azari on it, and he was he's a voice actor for The Simpsons and does other things too, but he he's in recovery, and he had to say, you know, he says to people that are coming, you know, he's famous now, at least. He's, I had to explain who he was to you, but he's famous. <laughs> well, trust me. Uh, but um, and, and wealthy, and he has it all. But he says, I still hate myself, and I still did drugs and, and drank, and because and I, he said he tells all of his sponsees, getting all this stuff is not going to 
And then he says, they always say, well, it didn't work for you, but I think it's going to work for me. It's like, okay, you try it, but trust me, you will end up, it will not make you love yourself. Uh, even if everybody else loves you, you feel like they do because you're famous. Yeah? Uh, is there anywhere specific in Mark where Mark says, I'm Mark? No, no, the Gospels are all, except, I mean, the fourth Gospel says the disciple who Jesus loved. But that's not a name. So. Uh, I just bring that up is that, um, you know, we don't necessarily, it doesn't surprise me if Solomon isn't, because even in other books we don't have right. yeah. specifically stating yeah. who the author was. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it, that would actually, it seems to be more common than it is yeah. the standard. Yeah, there is an implication of Solomon, of Solomon by, by saying son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's the only person that could be is Solomon. Mm -hmm. um, I, unless it's like descendant of David. But they, they didn't have a lot of kings. Did they after Solomon? I mean, they, had, they were never really an independent, I guess the Maccabees. But even then, I mean, there's... It's got to be Solomon, you know, Solomon's voice implied, but never comes out and says it. Why? And if Solomon's writing it, why didn't he say, I, Solomon, you know, learned all this stuff? So it's, it's a genre question about what genre is this. And to me, it's allowable to say that somebody's writing in Solomon's name. And this doesn't really matter anyway. We just spend a lot of time talking about it. But uh, it's interesting. I think it's interesting to me. Uh, think about, and I'm okay. If you think someone right, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> okay. Um, let's get into chapters one and two. And so, uh, hedonics is the study of what makes people happy. I learned this term. I, I preached a sermon here several years ago on in the series on Ecclesiastes, and I read this book, whole book. So I'm going to use it again because I read a whole book on it uh, by Dane Gilbert, who's a psychologist who teaches at Harvard and had like the most popular class at Harvard, which got my interest because I want to have the most popular class at Lipscomb. But uh, it was on, it was a psychology class, and it was on how to be happy. So this is the word, hedonics. Um, so in Ecclesiastes, he starts off talking about uh, pleasure. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, okay. What verses? 1 to 11. Um, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind still guiding me, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
My heart took delight in all my labor, and this is a reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless and chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So let's try pleasure and see how that works. Um, how's that working for you? So um, this is the book, Dan Gilbert, uh, Stumbling on Happiness. His metaphor that he uses is eating a plate of pancakes. Uh, I always think about Pancake Pantry. Uh, I get the buckwheat pancakes there, which I highly recommend. Um, but you have to stand in line at the Pancake Pantry for an hour, you know, and then you finally get in there, and you're hungry, as some of us may be right now if we didn't have breakfast. And the pancakes come out, and the first bite, your, your happiness level goes from zero to room without a roof, right? So, I mean, it's great, it's awesome. And the second bite, still good, third bite, fourth bite, and you know, then you get halfway through the stack, and it starts, your, your happiness level isn't increasing at the same amount, and then when you're finished with the stack of pancakes, you're actually decreasing your happiness level as you, as you go along. So he uses this as a metaphor to recognize this phenomenon in life. Um, that yes, will more money make you happy? Well, temporarily, yes, it can. And, and if you're, especially if you're at a level of needing to pay for something or needing to buy food or you know basic necessities of life, yes, it will make you happier to have more money. Let's admit that. But there's going to be a law of diminishing return where going from a certain level to the next level it starts you're not going to be as happy um, I think it's a rapper that said no money no problems or something like this but yeah I, I remember an NBA star when they went on strike one time they said you know you guys make you know 15 million dollars a year he's like we spend a lot of money <laughs> yeah, we make a lot of money. I spend a lot of money. I don't have a lot. <laughs> um, so people's happiness level, this is according to Dan Gilbert, and he's done psychological surveys, whatever those are. Uh, how, however, I, I mean, I know what they are, but I don't know how accurate they are. <laughs> um, usually stays at a seven. You win the lottery, it goes up for a while. If you go through a difficult time, it goes down for a while. But a lot of times people come back to seven. Is this on a 10 point scale? On a 10 point scale, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, 10 point scale. Yeah, numbers are important. I mean, he had 700 lives, and everybody was supposed to be happy. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, what do you think? Pleasure as a source of happiness. <coughs> uh, pretty temporary. Yeah. And one other comment before I forget, before we run out of time. It seems to me that Ecclesiastes kind of is what we would now call like a case study in first person. Yeah. To where it's like, you know, someone said, you know, it seems like. Solomon had it all, but he, he fell away from God, so it would be good if we memorialized this in an interesting way. Yeah. yeah. And Kim's point about the more money you have, the, the 
more effective it, it is when you say money is not going to make you happy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say we're not at a site. I feel like in, our, in American society, we're never happy. Yeah. We're, you know, FOMO. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we do things because we're, we're, we're seeking out things because we're not happy. And we're constantly trying to find that magic wand that's going to yeah. change all of our circumstances. When in reality, uh, kind of goes back to things made for Solomon. Solomon had wisdom, but he didn't have a relationship <coughs> with the Lord. Yeah. It's the love of a relationship, not wisdom. Yeah. And so, and that's the thing when it comes to pleasure. Yeah. There's a lot there. I mean, we're in a consumer society that functions on making us unhappy with our iPhones and needing the new one. Yeah. I'm speaking from experience, I just thought. Yes. Um, what about wisdom? Uh, let's look at 12 to 16. I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? And I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So this is that theme of death. Um, wisdom is better than folly, but even if you learn everything, you are still going to die. So there's there's this element in the wisdom tradition, it's even in Proverbs some too, to think about death, because it's a part of being, to live a wise life. Um, you have to think about what's going to happen after. Um, you have to plan, you know, ahead about if, if there is an afterlife, I need to factor that into how I live now. Um, so this is uh, something you may have seen before, um, resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. So a lot of times we spend a lot of time on our resume virtues, but what are they going to say at your funeral, you know? Uh, his, his crowning achievement was when he made full professor. Probably, you know, maybe not. <laughs> Her email inbox was always empty by 6.30 every night. This is the key virtue that this person has. So why do we spend all our time on these resume things? If there's some wisdom in thinking about, well, what's going to be the deeper uh, relationship part of life? Seth, you have a comment? Well, I'm thinking what people like to think of you like, on your resume. Like either before you die or like friendships and depending on what people think of you. Yeah. On your resume and through like wisdom and friendships. Yeah. It's uh I mean it's a good practice to go to funerals sometimes to just get a sense of that. Uh get a reminder of that. Yeah. The president of my company passed away last year and uh 
So there were about 10 of us in the back of the huge church, full. And his company was a asterisk in his funeral. Mm-hmm. Something I knew him like five days a week. That's who he was. I knew he did other things. Mm-hmm. But his eulogy had nothing to do with the fact that he owned the company. Yeah. And it has really challenged me because I knew like I knew him as a boss who happened to be a very giving, kind man. But his funeral was much more about his kindness and his giving than it was anything about what he did for for a job. Yeah. And yeah. so it, it's 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 almost hard to because sometimes you have to have those resume skills in order to have the eulogy skills. <laughs> That's right. Like I mean yeah, they're not unrelated. Yeah. But but it is very it's challenging to go to a funeral and realize that what's said about me will have nothing to do with what I do for work. Yeah. That I spend most of my time with. Wisdom, you guys are wise. All right, let's talk about toil. (laughs) Um, You ever seen a U-Haul in the back of a hearse? You cannot take it with you, people, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 23. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, all of its meaningless chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had pulled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. If they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. And this too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days... Their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. So, um, yeah, uh, you can't take it with you. <laughs> and death is a great equalizer. Um, yeah. Well, every time I read this part, it always reminds me of that song, uh, Work Your Fingers to the Bone, What Do You Get? Yeah, Bone Bone Bone. Fingers. <laughs> I think of, uh, you load 16 tons, what do you get? <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, the joke is this guy died, he, he got three of his friends, a banker, a lawyer, and a preacher, to throw in. He says, when I die, I want you to throw $100,000 bag of money in my, in my grave. And so they, the funeral, they all threw their bags in, and after they were sent around and the, Banker said, "Well, I gotta confess, I kept fifty thousand out." And the lawyer said, "Well, I confess, I kept uh, seventy-five thousand out." And the priest was like, "I'm ashamed of you guys. I put in a personal check for the full amount." <laughs> um, yeah, you cannot. I mean, it's, you cannot cash checks after your death. There's some wisdom in knowing that. Okay. Um, so, what is the secret to being happy? Now, I'm going back to the Dan Gilbert book. He's not a Christian, but his, psycholog- his psychological research came to the same place that Ecclesiastes comes to. Lower your expectations. <laughs> That's the secret 
to being happy in life is low expectations. It helps with everything. It helps with movies. It helps with this class. <laughs> A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their tour. So Ecclesiastes talks about savoring the everyday, the everyday moments, finding joy in everyday moments, not waiting for the big vacation or payoff or whatever it is. Um, Dan Gilbert talks about natural, natural happiness is when you get what you want. Um, and then synthetic happiness is when we don't get what we want, but we still find happiness. Um, and he's, he quotes from Pete Best, who was the drummer that the Beatles shafted one day, I think. They said, go out for coffee, and when he came back, they were gone. You know, like they kicked him out as their drummer. He said later, my life was much happier than if I had stayed with the Beatles. Do you believe? Do you believe that? that? He believes it. He believed it. He would rather have not been in the Beatles. Even though I'm sure he was sad for a time, at the end, he's like, I'm kind of glad that didn't happen for me. Um, I don't think so, we believe that, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we're such pleasure addicts we go no man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean they had some rough lives. Yeah. I mean marriages and divorces and drugs and I mean it's just some problems. I don't know. I don't know. You may not have John Lennon, but yes. But there's also a point where those who have gone through difficult situations like, whether it's recovery or anything like that, part of where it comes from is out of gratefulness. Yeah. And you have to look back and go, I don't think I would, I, I'm thankful for what I went through, and I'm thankful, so I can see, I can understand his sentiment of, I'm happy where I am now, because I chose where I am now, that if I stayed there, watching from afar what they all went through, uh-huh. and thankful I'm here where I am now. To be content in where you're at, not wanting something else. Yeah. Yeah. But again, Pete Best would have been with what three other guys that didn't want him around. <laughs> I mean, it is it is what it is. The sooner you can kind of rationalize it and, and you know benefit your own life, the better off you'll be. You know, I, I went through something in my life that was kind of similar, uh, work-wise, and it's like much better off. Yeah. You know, just cutting bait and moving on. What what Dan Gilbert says in the book is that he does the brain part of it. To our brains, synthetic happiness is just as real as natural happiness. It's it's the same effect on your brain. Pleasure centers. Um, he uses this illustration. I'm thinking of Autumn here because she just got engaged. Um, but uh, he says if you're Fiance picks his nose, you know, driving the car or something, you might want to break it off. Um, but uh, if your husband does it, you're like, he has a heart of gold. I, I don't really want him as a quick pick of your nose, but you still love him because he has a heart of gold. You know, you, you find ways of managing your expectations. And, uh, your, Is that a biographical that, situation? That was Dan Gilbert's illustration. Uh, although, 
could have been mine. Too. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a lot of wisdom, and, and especially, as Mike said earlier, um, in, in our culture, we have to try to believe it, even though, as Bruce says, we, we probably don't believe it. It's, hard, it's a hard thing to believe. But just our, our brains are so wired for normalcy and pleasure. I mean, you read those first chapters, two, that Ecclesiastes 2, that was written today, man, this guy's an addict, he needs help. You know, right? and, and, but you, you, you do that because it temporarily puts your brain in a normal place. And, but it, it doesn't satisfy, it's the synthetic, that the road to the synthetic is only shot, you know, but yeah. we're wired for the others. Yeah. We're all thinking about lunch, you know. I mean, we're, 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 I'll be happier with yeah, a little lunch. How many times have I eaten too much and they're like, why did I eat that? <laughs> Last night. <laughs> why did I have that second fish taco? <laughs> I wasn't even hungry when I ate that. <laughs> Anything else? What else do you guys, what are you thinking? Yeah. I think this is a book that the New Testament speaks to a lot. Like it totally changes your interpretation. Because even last week when we were doing that whole the three things of what depresses you both, yeah. I was kind of like, well, really none of them because we're not pagans, so we don't need statues in our honor. That's not what immortality is to us anymore. And because I think our, the kingdom of God is what lives forever, yeah. we just work in it. It's not even about our name and who remembers us. Yeah. It's about the kingdom going on. Yeah. And then of course death. I think we have a different picture of eternal life yeah, than they do. Of course, right. we're going to die, but there's more after that. Yeah. And then the randomness, I've come to just, this class has kind of made me realize, like, randomness and chaos is a human perception of life. Like, if you believe in an omniscient, omnipotent God, there, by definition, nothing's random or chaotic to him. That's what we use to describe, like the Hevel. Yeah. And so I guess for me at this stage in my life, as long as someone understands that it's not random you know like it doesn't have to be me yeah, yeah. <laughs> so god knows and i can just be content with the fact that i can't figure it out yeah and so i don't know i think from a christian point of view this is a lot less depressing yeah. maybe than it was for them that's very good yeah. very good mm -hmm. we were talking in the beginning about story um before class started and we all have to find a story in the new testament and the bible as a, as a track going toward the new testament gives us the story that we need to make sense. Everybody has to have a, make a, their life has to fit in a story. It's going to fit, you're going to have a story. You don't, you can't choose not to have one. And and then how we frame that story is what gives meaning to and purpose and all that. Yeah. And the Christian story answers a lot of it. It does. It does. It's amazing. It's almost like it was planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank, thank you everybody for being part of class today. Hope to see you.